You're listening to a City on a Hill podcast. We'd love you to use and share this podcast, but please refrain from editing the content without permission from City on a Hill. If you'd like to know more about our church, or if you'd like to donate to the work of City on a Hill, please visit cityonahill.com.au. Today's passage is from the book of Matthew in chapter 5, starting in verse 21. You have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council, and whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. So if you are offering your gift at the altar, and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled with your brother, and then come and offer your gift. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you are going to, with him to court, lest your accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard, and you be put in prison. Truly I say to you, you will never get out until you have paid the last penny. You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. It was also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Again, you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. But I say to you, do not take an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by the earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not take an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. Let what you say be simply yes or no. Anything more than this comes from evil. You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him take your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who begs from you and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbour and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? You, therefore, must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, I must say that I'm very relieved that some of the restrictions are coming off for us, at least until we get the next case, <laughs> um, because I've found it increasingly difficult to keep the rules. I was very conscientious at the start. I remember back in about April last year, 
I ducked into my parents' house very briefly. I actually went to their front door and they, I was scandalised when they invited me in and I half expected that there'd be like paratroopers that would fall down, come into the living room. Of course, that happened back in uh, later on in August. That was happening, I think. But things deteriorated as time went on. I was so careful at the start and then things got worse. I think I found masks the most difficult thing. I know it sounds like a simple thing, just put a little bit of cloth in front of your mouth, but it's very frustrating and difficult. As, as someone who wears glasses, they're constantly getting fogged up, and I hate that thing where you go to the shops, ah, oh, got to go back to the car, remember they forgot the mask, and, and, and then just trying to show emotion with a mask because you're kind of like trying to smile at everyone with your eyes, and at the, you end up just looking like you're startled by everything. Like, amazed by what's happening. But of course, it's deeper than that too. It just felt like it was really hard seeing everyone kind of as a threat, as an enemy. It feels kind of dehumanising somehow. And so I became very resistant. Uh, I've generally kept the rules, but I haven't always done it gladly. And so I make this big show of when I get it, as soon as I get out of coals, I'm like, off with the mask. I'm like, William Wallace, like, freedom! You know, this is, this is my statement of freedom. Um, now, of course, this has something interesting to say about my heart, of course. You see, I don't like obeying rules. I'm always looking for loopholes. I might keep the letter of the law, but I don't necessarily want to keep the spirit of the law. And humans, of course, are like this about lots of rules, and perhaps especially with God's rules. We're always looking for loopholes and workarounds, always trying to find a way around them. Uh, and even when we keep them, we, we often might find ourselves just keeping the letter of the law rather than the spirit of it. And that's really the world that Jesus stepped into. When he came to first century Jerusalem and Israel, there were lots of people, very pious Jews, who believed that they were keeping the law very carefully to the nth degree. In fact, they were really troubled by Jesus's approach to the law. They felt like he was blasé. He was dismissive. He was the guy who just strolls through Bunnings without a mask. That's, that's how they viewed Jesus. But as we saw last week, his intention was not to destroy the law at all. Matthew 5 verse 17, Do not think that I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. I've not come to abolish them, but to fulfil them. And as Pastor Coy explained last week, there's a number of ways in which Jesus fulfils the law. For a start, he kept the law. He fulfilled all the requirements of the law by obeying them. Uh, he was also the fulfilment of everything that the law in the Old Testament had pointed to. So, for instance, in the Old Testament, you have a temple, the, the place that God appointed to meet with his people. Jesus replaces that. He is the place where the sacrifice is made, and so we are able to meet in him. And there's also a sense in which Jesus fulfills the law by showing us the reach of the law, the, the breadth and the depth of God's law, God's intent in giving us the law. And I think that's really what's God's, uh, Jesus' purpose in this passage today. As I said, the people that he's speaking to imagine that they're keeping the law really well. They were very pious about it, but they were constantly looking for the loopholes. And so Jesus will clarify and correct them. So you'll notice all through this passage that he says, you have heard it said, but I say to you, what he's saying is that you've taken some of these laws and, and you've made all of these traditions around them. Sometimes they would add to the law. Sometimes they would take away from the law. All of the time they tended to distort the law. And Jesus here is going to try and clarify it and correct them. 
He wants them to see the true intent of God behind all of these laws. He wants to get to their hearts because this is the, the number one thing. He wants them to see that keeping God's law is not just about your hands but your heart. It's not just about your actions but your motivations. That's what he really wants them to see. Now, there's a lot of stuff in this text. We're not going to be able to go through all of it in detail, but I think we'll be able to get through enough that will show us the intent of Jesus' message. And first of all, he starts with something very basic, very fundamental, the law of human life, basically. Matthew 5, verse 21, you have heard it said said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. The Jews understood this commandment, the sixth commandment of the Ten Commandments, uh, forbade unlawful killing. There was in the Old Testament uh, certain uh, situations where it was lawful to kill someone in war, for instance, or uh, in judgment of, uh, and punishment for an, an illegal act. But there was also uh, this commandment was really talking about the deliberate, unjustified taking of human life. Everyone was agreed that this was the wrong thing to do. But Jesus actually says the law goes further than that, that it reaches even to anger and to insulting words. The word that he uses, the translated insult, is the word raka. Basically, it means empty-headed. It's saying to someone, you're an idiot. That's what he's saying. And then uh, that's a, a real comment on someone's intelligence. But then the next word, fool, focuses on their character. That was a, a, Greek, a, a word that basically um, you would use for someone who had no redeeming features. You felt that they were morally reprehensible. You're saying, oh, you're like Hitler, basically. Jesus says, It's not acceptable to do that. As Sinclair Ferguson says, Jesus is saying that the sixth commandment forbids not just the physical act of murder, but every thought and word that seeks to destroy a man's life. You see, murder is about wanting to get rid of someone, to eliminate them, and you can do that without laying a finger on them. Just think about how words can destroy a person's life. You know, uh, the words that you say to someone that defines their identity, destroys their identity. You know, we we have that line, sticks and stones may break my bones, but names will never hurt me. Uh, We say that because we're trying to defend ourselves against the reality. We know that names can hurt us, can damage us, can destroy us for life. Or think about slanderous gossip that destroys a person's reputation. We actually understand this, don't we? We talk about how someone engages in character assassination. The language we use is telling. It doesn't even have to be something made up. It could be that we share something true that doesn't need to be shared. This happens a lot in churches, doesn't it? Someone shares a prayer point and and, and you say, oh, out of care for this person, but actually you don't need to share that. You're actually trying to destroy them. What Jesus is saying here feels incredibly applicable to our age because we live in a time when our words can go further and deeper than ever before. I want to ask us, like, how do we behave in an online debate? What are we like on Facebook? It's so easy to be harsh and dismissive and cruel because we can't see the person in front of us. 
We so quickly lose our kindness. And think of the language we use for this. We talk about keyboard warriors. We understand that we go to battle with our words. And even if we aren't the ones to plunge into the knife, we're often part of the crowd watching on. If you read stories of the past, it's always shocking to hear how they would revel in public humiliation. You know, someone would be tarred and feathered and stuck up in the town square and everyone would laugh at them or in the stocks. Or you hear about the people who who would kind of enjoy the deaths of the French Revolution as the guillotine came down. And we think, how could they be like that? And yet are we all that different? You know, it's so easy for us to pile on when there's an internet shaming We kind of enjoy it. We like seeing the politicians squirm on TV. We love it when the tradie gets found out on a current affair. We swap stories about, oh, did you see how crazy that person was on that TV show last night? We love destroying people with our words. There's something savage about that. There's something murderous. There's murder in our hearts, Jesus is saying. And there's adultery too, verse 27. You've heard it said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Adultery was a very serious sin in Israel. It had very uh, serious consequences. But it's even seen in our culture as a very significant sin as well. Uh, We know that editors will be able to sell magazines with the latest scandal about which celebrity has had an affair. And we know, for instance, you might have noticed that tutting has kind of happened as a couple of AFL coaches have cheated on their wives in the last few months. We, we see it as something significant, don't we? This break of trust, this betrayal of someone. But Jesus goes further. Those actions are wrong, but even our thoughts can be wrong as well. As John Stott puts it, any and every sexual practice which is immoral indeed is immoral also in look and thought. So it's not just affairs, it's lustful desires. It's not just touching, it's looking. This is a very jolting message for our culture because everywhere around us we're encouraged to lust. It's constantly around us. It's not just pornography, hidden but accessible. It's on practically every billboard and TV ad around us. Sex sells and so it's used to sell everything. And it's seen as harmless or as fun. You're kind of encouraged to engage in it. But Jesus says that it's deadly. So deadly, in fact, that we must be willing to do anything to stop it. Verse 29, if your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. Now, some people have taken this kind of advice very literally. Uh, Oregon of Alexandria uh, many centuries ago was what you call an ascetic. He would kind of punish his body to try and discipline it, rob himself of food and sleep, and in an extreme moment he decided to castrate himself. Now this was tragically misguided. He's actually missing the entire point of what Jesus is saying, that the sin is not just in your body, it's in your heart, it's in your mind. Yes, you can kind of take off a member, but it, it doesn't actually change your heart. That's the problem. See, Jesus is using a dramatic figure of speech. John Stott explains what he's advocating is not a literal physical self-maiming but a ruthless moral self-denial, not mutilation but mortification. 
is the path of holiness. And mortification means to reject sinful practices so resolutely that we die to them or put them to death. He goes on to explain, if your eye causes you to sin, don't look. If your foot causes you to sin, don't go. If your hand causes you to sin, don't do it. Treat yourself almost like you don't have a hand or an eye or a foot. That's how resolute we should be against this sin. As we kind of take stock of these first 10 verses or so, I want you to see the poison of sin. See, Jesus is really trying to broaden our definitions of sin. It's not just murder, it's anger. It's not just adultery, it's lust. And I think this really challenges our pride. You see, we like to reassure ourselves. Ah, oh, look, I hate that person, but I've never killed them. Ah, oh, look, I, I kind of flirt with that person, but it's never going to go anywhere. I'd never have an affair with them. Of course, this is presumptuous. I've seen people go far further than they ever thought they would. But more than that, there's something evil about where we are. That's what Jesus is saying. It's not just a sin, uh, not just crossing that line, it's where you already are. It's the sin in the heart. Yes, you might not kill someone, but if you've got that kind of anger, Jesus sees you as murderous. If you've got that kind of hatred for someone else, yes, you might not have an affair, but if you're lustful, then Jesus sees you as adulterous. The same motivation is there. It's the same DNA. It might not flower into the full sin, but there's already sin in your heart. That's what Jesus wants us to see. He wants us to see the breadth of our sin. But I think he also wants us to see the depth of it too. See, he's not just expanding the law, he's explaining it. He's not just telling, what is, telling us what is wrong, but he's inviting us to see why it's wrong. Why is it? I think it's because these sins dishonour the grandeur of a person, the glory of humanity. You see, we are made in God's image, Genesis 1.27. Let us make man in our image after our likeness. That's what God says. Every single person around you, you yourself, have a profound value because you have been made by God in his image to be like him. I've heard it described this way. When we deal with each other, we should do so with the sense of awe that arises in the presence of something holy and sacred. For that is what we human, human beings are. Or as C.S. Lewis put it, there are no ordinary people. You've never talked to a mere mortal. Every one of us has a profound value. And that's what undergirds all of this. That's why... Sin, that's why murder is so serious. In fact, that's how Jesus, uh, God explains it. Genesis 9, whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed, for God made man in his own image. But it's there when we hate people as well. When we hate someone, we're trying to get rid of them. They're an obstacle to us. They stand in our way. And when we hate them, we're showing the same kind of murderous uh, disregard for what God has created. We can't do that. I mean, think about how you speak to a telemarketer. I mean, this is the optimum moment. You're angry already. Your phone company has let you down. You can't see the person on the phone, so you unleash, unleash on them. You lose any kind of restraint. You don't see them as a human, do you? 
we dehumanize people with our sin. It's the same with lust. And when we speak about how we use a language of objectification, don't we? That we're seeing someone as an object, not a person. Surely you felt this when you lust after someone. There's a sense in which you're consuming them. You're kind of eating them up with your eyes. That's not okay, Jesus says. I think that might be why he mentions divorce here as well. Of course, this is a very complex topic. And I don't think that this is the verse where Jesus is kind of explaining his whole theology on divorce. He does a lot more of that in Matthew 19. I think what he's trying to say here is that you can have a callous <clears throat> Don't worry, I got tested during the week. Um, <laughs> you can have a, a callous or a selfish attitude towards people that dehumanizes them. You see, in the Old Testament, there were allowances for divorce in the Old Testament law. In Deuteronomy 24, if a husband found some indecency in his wife, it was permissible to get a divorce. That, that was something like adultery. But the Pharisees in the first century had taken this far further than that. They had defined indecency in a very broad way. So if she, a wife failed to cook his meal properly or, or kind of didn't clean the house as much as he wanted or just kind of started looking a bit plain, that was seen as indecent and so he could just divorce her just however he wanted to. But this was cruel and harsh. You see, in the first century, a wife who had been divorced couldn't just go out to, new, to Centrelink and get a new start. She couldn't just go and get another job. She had no way of providing for herself. And now her image had been, her reputation had been destroyed. See what the man's doing. He's treating her in a cruel and harsh way. He's dehumanized her. He's not treating her as valuable. That's what sin does. All of these sins, it dehumanizes the people around us. And it dehumanizes us as well. So I don't know if you've noticed this, but. These sins, they grow within us. and We enjoy these sins. We enjoy lust. We enjoy anger. And it's a secret sin. No one else notices. It doesn't feel like it's hurting anyone else. But even if it doesn't, it's hurting us. It might start out as something soft, the pornography, but it gets harder, violent, perverse. What used to be disgusting is now the only thing that it can, can satisfy or with hatred. You think about how it begins perhaps with, with a, a self-righteous anger which quickly turns into something, uh, turns into uh, arrogance and you become bitter and cynical, scornful of everyone around you. I catch it in myself as I'm watching TV. I'm constantly like, paying out. This person, oh, how stupid are they? That, that's what I'm thinking. That's how I'm acting. John Owen said, be killing sin or it will be killing you. Sin grows. See the poison of sin. I think the law is designed to show the value of humanity and the, the seriousness, the poison of sin. But I also think it's designed to show us the power of good. That's what I think we're invited to see from verse 38. You see, the, the first part of this passage is all about how we can mistreat others. Now I think this second part is really about how we respond to other people mistreating us. Jesus is clear in verse 38. You've heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. 
Here is, is Jesus's idea. When you are mistreated, respond with grace. Rather than vengeance, show kindness. And then he plays out this principle in a number of examples. First of all, verse 39, if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. This is really about how you respond to an insult. When someone was slapped on the cheek, it wasn't about physical harm. It was about an emotional injury. It It was about someone slandering you. Now, there was laws that said that you could take that person to court. But Jesus is saying, don't insist on your rights. Accept it. Don't retaliate. Instead, be generous to your oppressor. Verse 40, if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. Uh, The tunic was a long-sleeved garment, uh, kind of like thermal underwear, and the cloak was this kind of multi-purpose garment that you'd put over the top but also you'd use as a blanket. This is the the most important thing in your wardrobe. But Jesus says, look, if someone wants this, then just give it to them. Even if they're taking from you, just keep giving to them. A similar principle in verse 41. If anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Uh, This had a quite specific relevance to the first century. You might remember that the Jews were under Roman rule and and a Roman soldier could just kind of take someone and kind of press gang them into service. We see this in the story of Simon of Cyrene. He's just standing by the side of the road. Jesus comes past with his cross and they say, right, Simon, you're going to carry this cross. And so he has to carry it through Jerusalem to Golgotha. This is, he was just being asked to do this. Now Jesus says, if someone asks you to go one mile, go two. And don't just be generous to those above you. Be generous to those below you. Verse 42, give to the one who begs from you and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. And notice there's no qualifiers here. You don't have to assess, oh, will this person pay me back or do they deserve this? No, 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 just, just give. In fact, in Deuteronomy, God had said to his people that they should open their hand to the poor. You shall give to him freely and your heart shall not be grudging when you give to him. Now, these examples, of course, raise lots of questions for us. Now, first of all, this feels like we're just kind of ignoring injustice. Uh, how does that work? I mean, God is the God of justice, Isaiah 61. I, the Lord, love justice. I hate robbery and wrong. He will ultimately judge all people and all things, Ecclesiastes 12, for God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. And so Jesus is not denying that these people are, are doing the wrong thing. What he is saying, though, is that it's not for us to pursue their judgment. See, the Jews had a very exact system of justice. Exodus 21, if there is harm, then you shall pay life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot, burn for burn, wound for wound, stripe for stripe. This is called the law of retaliation. And at one level, it might seem very uh, brutal to us, but it is actually designed to protect people. You see, uh, God understands that the people back then and, and even now us, whenever we're wronged, our tendency is to be vengeful, to not just seek justice but vengeance, and we can go too far with that. This law created a system where it was done proportionately and crucially. It wasn't done by the individual. It was entrusted to someone who was a just judge. That's what Jesus is saying here. When someone wrongs you, you aren't the one who exacts your punishment. You aren't the one that makes sure that they cop everything. You've got to allow someone else to do that. 
But of course, Jesus is taking it a step further too, isn't he? He's inviting us not just to think about justice, but to think about grace. John Stott explains, an eye for an eye is a principle of justice belonging to courts of law. In personal life, we must be rid not only of all retaliation in word and deed, but of all animosity of spirit. Instead, what Jesus demands of all his followers is a personal attitude to evildoers, which is prompted by mercy, not justice, which renounces retaliation so completely as to risk further costly suffering, which is governed never by the desire to cause harm, but always by the determination to serve their highest good. Challenging, isn't it? Think about it when someone wrongs you. Jesus is saying, don't have the attitude, oh, how are they going to cop it? When are they going to get their comeuppance? Jesus is saying, have an attitude that seeks their best good, that wants to see them experience mercy and grace. Yes, you've been wronged. God's not denying that, but absorb it. Yes, you have rights, but don't demand them. Don't approach the world thinking about what you're owed, but what you can give. As Sinclair Ferguson puts it, where the sin of others abounds, grace in God's people should abound much more. Jesus is, is really pressing here, and I feel like he, he goes to the next level in verse 43. You've heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbour and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes his son, his son rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. Uh, the language of father and son here is all about character. Uh, in ancient Israel, uh, a son would do what their father did. So if your dad was a carpenter, your son would be as well. Uh, and so Jesus is saying here, God is a kind and generous God. And so his children, his people will be generous and kind and loving. They will even love their enemies. This is kind of true and radical next level grace. And this is what, it def what defines the people of God. Remember this, this sermon, the Sermon on the Mount, I've said is all about what it looks like to live in the kingdom of God under the rule of Christ. What are the values? What's the culture of this kingdom? And here we see it. Grace. Loving your enemy. And, and this is so different and countercultural, but we should expect different. In fact, Jesus kind of challenges us, almost taunts us in verse 46. If you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? He's saying, look, you love the people who love you. whoop de dee It's not impressive. Anyone can do that. No, no, no. I expect more, Jesus says. I want you to love your enemies. How do we do this? Or even more to the point, why? Why are we being called to do this? I think it's because grace changes everything. Grace disrupts and circumvents evil, lays a pathway for goodness. The power of good can overcome the poison of evil. I was reading a story yesterday about a guy called Ernest Gordon 
He was in the British Army during World War II, captured by the Japanese and forced to work on the Burma Railway, uh, building a, ri- a bridge over the River Kwai in Thailand. It was horrible, deadly work, searing temperatures, desperate humidity. They were terribly mistreated by their captors, pushed beyond exhaustion, beaten to death. 80,000 men died. In these desperate circumstances, morale disintegrated, and so did morality. Our journalist picks up the story. Treated like animals, the men themselves became like beasts trying to survive. Theft and betrayal were as rampant as hunger and disease among them. Life was met with indifference, deceit, and hatred. Friends had become enemies. But then something changed. A spiritual revival spread through the camp. Gordon writes, death was still with us, but we were slowly being freed from its destructive grip. We were seeing for ourselves the sharp contrast between the forces that made for life and those that made for death. Selfishness, hatred, envy, jealousy, greed, self-indulgence, laziness and pride were all anti-life. Love, heroism, self-sacrifice, sympathy, mercy, integrity, on the other hand, were the essence of life turning mere existence into living in its truest sense. True, there was hatred, but there was also love. There was death, but there was also life. God had not left us. He was with us, calling us to live the divine life in fellowship. And then miraculously, this radical selflessness that had begun to show uh, among them was then shown to their enemies. While travelling on a prisoner train, uh, Gordon and his compatriots pulled up alongside a troop train uh, carrying wounded Japanese soldiers. They had no medical support and had apparently been left for dead by their own army. They were, of course, the enemy, but now they were loved. A journalist writes, Without a word, many many of the officers unbuckled their packs took out part of their rations and a few rags and with their canteens went over to the Japanese train. The guards tried to prevent them, but they pressed through, kneeling by the side of the injured men with food and water, cleaning their wounds. Eighteen months earlier, the same men of the River Kwai prison camp would have celebrated the humiliation and destruction of anyone on the side of their violent captors. Yet Gordon explains, we had experienced a moment of grace God had broken through the barriers of our prejudice and had given us the will to obey his command, thou shalt love. Do you see the power of good? You see, when someone mistreats us, it looks like they have all the power. But when we respond with grace, we reclaim that power power of God's character. Grace changes things. Grace softens and renews. Grace makes people human again to us. You see, sin makes us see humans as objects, people who are just less important than us, there for our consumption. And if they get in the way, they're just obstacles that we need to get over or get past. Sin poisons us and the world around us. But grace changes everything. It's like God breathing once more into the person in front of us, breathing the image of God to us. We see it and it softens our hearts 
and moves our hands, not in hatred, but in love. See the power of good. Maybe there's someone who's your enemy. Maybe there's someone that you're resentful towards, someone that you just can't forgive. You just don't want to show grace towards them. They've wronged you. They've cheated on you perhaps. They've hurt you. They've broken your heart. There's no question that they've done the wrong thing. It's no surprise that you're angry at them. There's a righteousness in your anger. But perhaps you've closed your heart to them. You're not willing to make any space for them. You're not willing to show them grace or to love them. I get it. They've hurt you. But what if, what if your actions could change their life? What if you could have an impact by showing them love? What if your love could melt them? Now, I'm not saying you you just rush into this. I understand that you have to be careful. Love is also wise. There might be certain things that you can't do straight away. What you can do is you can pray. Pray for those who persecute you, Jesus says. There's a first step. It's so hard to hold on to anger and hatred towards someone when you pray for them. And then your prayer will, be, will change you. You'll start to love them. You'll be willing to forgive them. You'll be willing to show them grace. Understand that you're hurt. But is your hurt worth their destruction? You might think in your head, like, like, I I just wish they rot in hell. And you might actually mean that. But is it worth it? What if your grace, your love could change their life, could point them to God? Is it worth it? Now, I know I'm pressing here and I know that it's hard. And you're probably saying, look, how can I do this? How can Jesus ask this of me? Doesn't he realise how hard this is? Well, of course he does, doesn't he? Jesus truly practised what he preached. He was insulted and he turned the other cheek. He was hated and he prayed for his enemies. Father, forgive them, he says on the cross. How did he do this? Well, he entrusted himself to God and God's future justice. 1 Peter 2, he committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. And it had an impact. His grace melted hearts. Think about the Apostle Paul. We meet him in the start of Acts and he's ravaging the church. And then he meets Jesus and he's changed. He's transformed by God's grace. So we can be too. Let God's grace transform you. I find it fascinating how Jesus finishes this whole section. Verse 48, you therefore must be perfect. As your heavenly Father is perfect. I feel like this brings it all together. This is Jesus' command. He's summarising all of God's law. Just be perfect. This is what God expects. This is what God demands. Perfection. Nothing less. 
purity of body and mind, of hands and heart, not just avoiding murder, but avoiding hatred, not just of staying faithful with our bodies, but also with our minds and then loving others, even when they hate you, even when they're enemies. Now, of course, when we read this, we fall short of this. We feel our imperfection. We don't love our neighbours as we should, let alone our enemies. So we stand condemned. We are not perfect, but Jesus was. He did keep God's commands. He was tempted in all things just as we are, yet without sin. He was assaulted and treated unfairly and he turned the other cheek. He had many, many enemies and he loved them all, including us. See, ultimately, what Jesus wants us to see is that we are sinners, all of us, in ways we didn't even realise. We are God's enemies. We have fallen short of him. We've rebelled against him in our hands but also in our hearts, with our actions and with our minds, with our motivations. We've fallen short of him. We are his enemies, but God loves us anyway. Romans 5 verse 8, God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. We are sinners, we are God's enemies, and he died for us. Tim Keller says, the gospel is this, we are more sinful and flawed in ourselves than we ever dared believe, yet at the very same time, we are more loved and accepted in Jesus Christ than we ever dared hope. Do you see this? Do you see your sin? Because then you'll seek God's forgiveness and then you'll see God's grace and if you see God's grace, then you want to give that to other people. We have been made his children in a legal sense. We've been adopted, but now progressively he makes us more and more like him. And that means God is offering us the strength to become loving like he is loving. 1 John 4, God is love and whoever abides in love abides in God and God abides in him. See, this whole, this whole chapter feels impossible to us, right? And it's supposed to feel impossible because we're supposed to come to God with our falling short and then to see that he is now offering us his strength. The God of love who made the universe as an expression of his love, who made you and me and gave us value and dignity and grandeur, he is inside you now. He abides in you, this God of love. And so that love will start to grow within you. You'll start to change. You'll start to do what you never thought was possible because God will enable you to. And this will change the world. 1 John 4.12, no one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. The love that starts from God comes to us and then flows through us to the world. It's perfected. God's plan is completed. It's seen and manifested in us. It reaches the world. Let his love flood you and then flow from you. See, God, God's love, God's grace humanises us. It makes us the kind of humans, the kind of people we were meant to be, people made in his image. 
people who love like he loves. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for this passage. This is an incredibly confronting and challenging passage because at every step we realize that we fall short of what you're asking. Help us to feel that. Search our hearts and convict us. But then also, please show us Jesus. Thank you, Jesus, that you didn't fall short. That you kept it perfectly. Every law in heart and hands, actions and motivations, everything you did was perfect. And so now we can be considered as perfect. And thank you, Jesus, that even when we were enemies, you loved us by dying for us. And so we can stand before you, accept it. Thank you, perhaps, most of all, that you, the God of love, abide in us now. That you've sent your spirit to live in us, to change us, to make us loving. We've been made in your image and now we're remade in the image of Christ. Thank you for this blessing, for this grace. May your grace melt us and may we show that grace to others so that they're melted too. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to our podcast. If you'd like to know more about our church, or if you'd like to donate to the work of City on a Hill, please visit cityonahill.com.au.